Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today, here in New York, we're sitting down and chatting with Josh Nussbaum of Compound.vc, also known as Metamorphic, but we'll hear the story of the rebrand between Metamorphic and Compound. It's a great story. We'll get to that. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with your background. Uh, I know that you head up the tech at NYU club back when you were in college. Maybe you can start there. Start with what you did during college and, and sort of what was this initiative that sort of led you down the path that you're in today? Sure. Um, so I went to NYU, which is only about 15 blocks away from here. Um, and I sort of stumbled into um, a talk being given by David Lee, um, formerly of SV Angel, now uh, Refactor Capital. Um, and he was being interviewed uh, by Adam Penenberg, who's at uh, Pando Daily. Um, and he was talking about you know, the various startups he's invested in, his background at Google, how they think about sort of the future and some of the things that SVNJ was thinking about investing in. I mean, I had very little sort of knowledge of, of venture capital or startups. Um, I was always interested in technology to try and build websites and did graphic design and things like that. But that sort of led me down the path of trying to find, you know, similar like-minded students and learning more. Um, and I found a club called Tech at NYU, which, you know, is, I think it's the largest student technology organization in New York, maybe on the East Coast. And they would host everything from demo days to game days to uh, hackathon, startup week. I didn't head it up, but I ran startup week there. Um, where we would, you know, reach out to VCs and entrepreneurs and, you know, have people teach different programming languages and how to do different things. And, and my experience there really showed me the various different types of people, different skill sets that are working at different startups um, and interested in technology and startups. And so, you know, that really had me ingrained in the New York tech ecosystem, um, which led me to go into other events off campus, meetups, things of that nature, pitch competitions and learning about startups. Um, and then I decided shortly thereafter that I wanted to do something related to that. Um, I, I'd never seen anything so exciting before in my life. So what was the first thing you did after graduation then? Yeah, so I, I actually started at Metamorphic um, a year before graduation. So I, um, after that, I tried to start my own company. Um, mm -hmm. I had this idea. I taught myself the program, picked up a couple of SES classes, built the product, and you know, being sort of young and inexperienced, I thought the next thing you did was go raise venture capital money, and then you, you know, pay people and they work with you um, to build your vision. And I, I had met with some people, and David um, here was one of them. Poked a lot of holes in what I was doing. A few months went by. I decided I wasn't that passionate enough about it. I wasn't going to drop out of school to do it. And you know, kept in touch with him, and we hit it off. And he ended up asking me if I wanted to help out a little bit. Um, they were raising their second fund at the time, um, and there was a lot going on. They were still investing out of the first fund, um, and a little bit in the second for that. And uh, venture was never this thing that I thought that I could get into right out of school. Mm -hmm. Everybody I had known who went into venture, you know, was an engineer at Foursquare, Tumblr, and had done mm -hmm. these great things beforehand. But I loved it so much. I had never uh, learned so much so quickly about so many different things. Um, and so a couple months went by, I ended up uh, moving my classes to be in the evenings. Um, so I was here all day long, would run over to class from uh, 5.20 um, to 8.50 most days, and ended up basically being a full-time employee a couple of months before graduation. And then they presented me with an offer um, about a month before, and I joined in. Um, so it's been four years full-time, over four years, counting the intern internship as well. Yeah, and it's interesting you talked about that experience, a uh, short experience as this founder. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit more not only that experience, but also sort of a very interesting conversation you had with Jason Calacanis, which was a huge influence in, in maybe the way that you're thinking post-joining Metamorphic. Sure. Yeah, about six months um, before I had joined Metamorphic, when I was still working on um, the startup idea, I saw a tweet from Jason Calacanis, um, and he, was at a, he said he was at a coffee shop um, right near NYU's campus, and he had, I think, an hour or two to kill, and if anybody wanted to come by and, and talk to him, please feel free to. And I, you know, I ran out of class and got over there as fast as I could. Um, and I sat down with him. Um, and I, I had a whole lot of questions, but I was really asking for sort of career advice and advice um, for the future. And I was wearing a Knicks t-shirt. Um, it was the year they had uh, Jason Kidd 
and he's a huge Knicks fan. So we kind of bonded over that, and that was the year that the Knicks went to, or they came in second in the conference. Carmelo Anthony really had his best season as a pro, and I remember him talking about how uh, up to that point, Carmelo Anthony had been the scorer, and that's this one thing he did really, really well, but the team didn't win. Um, and when they started to win was when he was playing defense, and he was passing the ball, um, and he was helping his teammates, um, and he was rebounding and blocking shots and doing all the little things um, that add up into something much greater. Um, which turned out to be wins. And he used that analogy for people who aren't technical um, and aren't being recruited by Google and Facebook and you know, these big tech companies out of school to how they can succeed in you know the world of startups is that if you do all the little things, those do add up into big things, people end up leaning on you for um, help with things um, or to assist with projects. And over time, you'll continue to learn. And not, not to get ahead of myself, but that compounds over time um, into something that's you know completely invaluable to the team. And that was the best advice he gave me. And from then on out, I kind of, everything I was doing, I thought about it that way. You know, who can I help? Where can I sort of pitch in? How can I, you know, add value in all, any of the little ways uh, possible? Um, and I think that that sort of is, is how I ended up um, sticking around Metamorphic too, mm-hmm. um, was sort of, you know, coming in here and not wanting to just work on deals or, you know, just sort of working with the portfolio companies, um, but really doing all the little things for the firm or the companies that added up into something that um, could be irreplaceable over time. So you've been through quite a bit of the metamorphic now compound journey and gone from intern to now principal. And so you've seen uh, maybe even one or two fund cycles of many other funds in that time and seen New York go from a a emerging hub to now probably the the most or second to most or Boston, I think, would not appreciate that. uh, hub here in, in, in the East Coast. Walk us through that journey. Why did it start off metamorphic? Why is it not called Compound? And sure. what have been the key things that have changed during that period? Sure. So the first fund um, was raised shortly after um, the iPhone came out. And there wasn't really a vibrant app ecosystem yet. And it was pretty nascent. You know, this is maybe early days of Uber or even you know, shortly beforehand. And the opportunity that guys here saw was, you know, monetization on mobile. Um, it was a small fund, being the first fund. A lot of the consumer starts at the time were e-commerce, um, some consumer mobile apps. They tended to have binary outcomes. They needed a lot of capital before you found that out. Um, and so investing small amounts into the seed stage, you would get diluted. You wouldn't even know till a very long period of time um, whether or not you had a successful company in your hands. They saw this opportunity to invest in sort of the picks and shovels of that you know emerging ecosystem. Um, and that was the thesis they called uh, transactional media, which was the intersection of digital media and digital commerce. And, you know, they invested in some really great companies um, in that first fund. TapEd, which was acquired last year for over $300 million. Chango, which was acquired for, you know, also $100 million. Um, Movable Inc. here in New York, which is um, a really great company as a sale through. Um, Indiegogo, um, which is based in San Francisco, another good one. Um, Songza, which Google had acquired. And, you know, as time changes, um, the future is always just many different possible outcomes. And, you know, as one outcome happens, we start to look and say, you know, here is this new opportunity that we think is emerging based on these other macro forces. And we did that uh, when we raised the second fund, ended up investing in a lot of different marketplaces, companies like UpCouncil and Talkspace, SaaS companies um, like eCentral um, and others as well. And the world continues to change, right? It continues to find one of those outcomes and then there is a whole host of other new possible outcomes. But there was still this belief that Metamorphic, you know, only invested in, you know, maybe one location, whether it was New York or, you know, this thesis of transactional media. And I think that we, as a firm, decided that we wanted to really clear up that message. Um, We wanted to build a brand that could be flexible um, with 
the changes in the world um, and where we would invest in the future. And so we kind of came to the decision to rebrand um, and really tell our story the way that we felt we should tell it, kind of tell the world, hey, here's how we're thinking about things to sort of clear up that confusion for the future. Mm-hmm. And has that been a, a big challenge for you guys in terms of getting people to, to be aware of the, the brand, that the history yeah. of Metamorphic as opposed to like, this is some new fund I've never heard of. It's, it's only been a couple of weeks since we announced it. So, I, you know, we don't know yet. I think that you know, obviously Google helps a lot. If you search for Metamorphic, it comes up. You know, a lot of the people who do send us deals will make a comment that, you know, the fund was formerly known as, as Metamorphic. But, you know, we, we talked about that before we went through the rebrand. And the example we used was uh, Upfront Ventures in LA. Um, they used to be called GRP Partners, but, you know, there was a second where none of us could recall what the name was before. And so I think, you know, a VC brand over time, if you have kids today who are graduating from top universities, they don't even, they've never even heard of Metamorphic. Um, and so over time, it sort of disappears um, and becomes compound. But in the interim, it's, you know, formally known as. You've, you've touched upon several success stories that Metamorphic had early days. I know we had talked a little bit about offline about Alpha Draft and a few others. Maybe walk us through what are the attributes that a successful fund, in the case of Metamorphic, that get these exits done? You know, what, what is it that drives an exit in a venture fund? Is it passive, uh, let the founder drive that process and have strategic uh, buyers perhaps yeah. hover and then you provide support? Or is it something more proactive? Yeah, I would say that um, as a fund, it's our philosophy to really back founders that, that we believe in and can run the company. I, I think that if we thought that you know we could do a better job running the company than the founder, it's not a company we would invest in. Um, and so I would say that we're, we're in the background to the point where when the, the founder decides that they think that the best time to sell the business is now or there's inbound interest, we can be helpful um, and we usually are with introductions and helping them think through terms um, and negotiations and things of that nature. Um, if it is inbound and it's something they really want to get done, we can help them by sort of telling them the processes that we've gone through in the past, the things that we've seen, the issues, um, timelines, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Some of that is just um, pattern recognition of having seen you know many uh, exits beforehand. But if it's you know the company's doing really well and they think that now's the time to sell versus raise around, um, or things aren't going as well as they'd hoped and they think it's a good time to sell, that's when we can kind of be helpful with um, the acquirers, people that we know in, in corp dev and senior leadership positions, figuring out if it's a fit, if they'll talk to them, what they are looking for, and then taking it from there. So th- there is an ongoing, therefore, relationship building with corp dev departments? Yeah, I think that um, when we think about the, the firm, there's sort of a couple different aspects of it, um, which we talked about in the compound release, but a lot of our LPs and advisors come from um, big companies, whether it's web platforms, but traditional industries as well. So we spend a, you know, a, a decent sizable chunk of time building those relationships to help our companies with business development, with sales, corporate development, things of that nature. And we think that's important. And that's why, despite the fact that um, we invest all over the country, we spend, you know, we're headquartered in New York because that's where a lot of these companies are based or these teams are based or people pass through um, because we really feel like we can be that bridge um, to that ecosystem for startups. How how does a founder figure out for approaching VCs, who's got these stronger corp dev relationships? Because it would seem to be that the, the funds that obviously have those ties could facilitate a lot of introductions quite quickly. What, what has been the marker of advice that you've given founders to be able to um, not just assess whether or not a partner can provide value at the board level, but also whether or not the fund as a, as a whole has the right relationships with the right corp dev departments? Yeah, I, I think for a first-time founder, um, it's helpful to uh, build relationships with other founders. I think that they're the only ones who are going to tell it like it is. I haven't been in um, more than just a handful of pitches where there were other VCs present. 
Um, so I don't know how they, they pitch their firm. Um, but I would assume everybody has their own take on the value that they add. Um, and I think the only way to really cut through that noise is to be able to talk to other founders who have worked with these VCs, who have been part of the ecosystem for a while, may know other people who have worked with them, um, who can help them to pinpoint who those um, VCs are that would be best for them as they go and raise their first round of capital. Mm. So let's go back to Alpha Draft. That was uh, an amazing uh, return for you guys, uh, and a quick one too. Yeah, it was a quick Walk one. Walk us through the story of, of, of how you met them, what was your thesis, uh, and then uh, effectively how did the acquisition play out? Sure, sure. Um, so it was an exciting one for us. It wasn't you know, the, the biggest exit in the world, but it was fast. And for me personally, it was the first deal um, where I really had the conviction to be sort of pounding my fist on the table and, and really want to go ahead with it. And I had met them through a friend who used to work at uh, CAA Ventures. Um, and I was in LA for a conference. You know, we, we had coffee and he was asking what we're interested in. For about a year, I had been spending a lot of time learning about esports. I'm, I'm a sports fan myself. And it had all of the characteristics of something with long-term staying power. Um, and because it was all digital, there was more monetization opportunities um, and opportunities for scale than we've seen in sort of sports tech in general. And we met with a lot of different companies. Everybody had, you know, takes that we thought were interesting, but probably not big venture scale businesses. Um, and this was at the time when FanDuel and DraftKings were getting really big. Um, and so we knew that model. And I met the founder and, you know, he was a gamer himself. He played a lot of uh, fantasy sports. And those two things came together where you had this, you know, vibrant ecosystem um, of people who were really passionate about esports, but there wasn't a way to play with your friends and or bet a couple dollars on your favorite team players on those teams. And so, you know, that was really exciting to us. The early traction was really strong. There seemed to be demand for the product. And so we invested shortly thereafter. And the, the corp dev process sort of happened um, inbound. You know, both FanDuel and DraftKings wanted to build an esports product. Um, they saw it as sort of the next frontier. They were competing on these, these fronts with the, the major sports. Mm. Both companies wanted a way to sort of have it, first of all, find a team that could build that product, who has built that product, have a product, but also have the knowledge of the ecosystem because there's not a lot of people who do. And so, you know, I think it was two months after we had invested, um, the founder called me pretty late at night. Um, he's in the West Coast in LA. And he's something like, uh, you know, don't hate me, but I have something to tell you. <laughs> and I think that was that um, there was interest in this acquisition and he thought it was the best uh, move for the company. Um, and especially because he thought that you know, the best way to build this business long-term was to have the backing of somebody like that. Because these businesses tend to be almost negative or, or negative churn to an extent where, that's the right terminology, but over time, you, you pay your loss later in the beginning, right? You pay a lot of money to acquire a customer. Um, you keep some subset of those customers, but the ones that you do keep continue to spend more and more and more over time. And so as that happens, you can build a really, really big business. And you know those companies, FanDuel and DraftKings, saw that, which is why we saw the surge in advertising um, about two years ago. But it's tough to do that as a small seed stage startup. When you look at some of the other investments you've made recently, like uh, DeepGram and Finova, you're seeing a, a convergence towards a lot of the the trends, the buzzwords of the, of the day. You know, AI, sure. insurance tech, fintech. Maybe walk us through kind of what your philosophy is there. Yeah, when it comes to sort of AI and machine learning. You know, I'm sure this has been said many times on your podcast, but the convergence of cloud computing and the vast amounts of data being created and stored has sort of created this proliferation that wasn't possible in the past in those, those things. And the ability to solve problems that in the past weren't really solvable. Um, and I've been working on, or I will be working on this blog post, where in some ways AI is the new servers to an extent, whereas you know, in the past 
startups had to pre-launch, raise a lot of money, millions of dollars, just to be able to set up shop, right? To be able to get the servers and, and get going. And AI and machine learning has similar characteristics where in the beginning it makes sense to spend money as a loss leader to collect data because it's really the only thing that's defensible and proprietary over time. So to do that, do it in such a way that it continues to improve your machine learning or, or AI algorithms, creates this really great uh, moat and barrier to entry in the future that can create very large profits. And, and that's our thesis as it relates to DeepGram, where you know audio search has been this problem that people have tried to solve for a very long time. Uh, nobody really has insight into their audio data if you look at big companies. But uh, deep learning has made it possible to be able to, instead of taking text and try and transcribe it in real time, being able to search through that text. I mean, rather than transcribing it, do what they call fuzzy search basically looks at the probability and sounds out each word and then each word in the audio file and looks to make a match on how those things sound syllable by syllable by syllable. And, you know, there's a UX where the big company who buys the product is saying, hey, yeah, this is what I was looking for. This isn't what I was looking for. And then over time, that continues to get better and better and create this moat that you wouldn't have if you just did, you know, transcription search where your moat might be your, your sales team or your economy of scale. And as it relates to fintech, I think similarly, you know, that technology has made it so that companies like insurance companies, like lenders, the risk really isn't anymore in you know default rates and things like that because the predictive modeling has gotten really strong, but also it'll continue to get better and better. And so when we look at those industries, we sort of think about the ability to reduce overhead costs, to build better brands, customer service, build a relationship with the customer because the, the economy of scale isn't going to happen because of capital. And I think that that's something that we've been very excited about, especially when it comes to Finova, which is in the title lending space. Title lending isn't something that I knew very much about before we had met the company, but I learned a lot over the, that period of time. And, you know, it's an industry where there are thousands of offline locations in this country and people drive up and they need cash quickly and they give the titles of their car. You know, 80% of the costs on the loan go to overhead costs of having massive amounts of offline brick and mortar locations and servicing the loans and whatnot. But simply by just putting it online and making the loans um, year-long versus month-to-month, you can dramatically reduce default rates, become a lender that isn't as predatory, and helping people sort of unlock the value in their car the way that they do in a home. And you know that's something that that we're really excited about. And another company is uh, called Payjoy out in San Francisco, and they first product is a pay-as-you-go smartphone, and it basically uses your phone as collateral. So rather than going to Dwayne Reed if you don't have credit history or enough money to you know pay for a smartphone up front. You would go and you pay a little bit of money and then you pay off the smartphone over time. Now, you know, a lot of people use their smartphone for, for work, right? If you're going to be Postmate or an Uber driver, part of that 1099 economy, you kind of need a smartphone. Mm-hmm. And their, their technology basically can lock the phone if you miss a payment. And so that's something that you can put anything with a microchip. So if you, you know, look at areas of the world where they don't have credit history, that's a way to build credit history and get these new technologies in the hands of people previously wasn't accessible. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit about the things that made you miss a deal. And it sounds to me, one thing you, that you said struck me was you need to be looking at where the world will be and not necessarily how a technology will fit in the world yeah. that is today. And and this company that obviously uses pay-as-you-go phones as a, as a mechanism to do that is is one example. But maybe walk us through that one deal. Sure. Plaid, I think it was, that you yeah. mentioned that yeah. was the one that got away. And, and sort of the 
the, the, the forensic analysis of, of a missed opportunity. Sure. And I think this is something that I've, I've learned to get a lot better at over time. It was one of the first companies I met here. I don't even know if I was full-time yet. I may have still been interning. And the company's called Plaid, and they basically normalize your bank data um, so anybody can use that in their API. And, you know, it was a really, really smart founder, built a great product, you know, showed us one of the use cases, which was really special. But in thinking about it, at the difficult times were wrapping my head around the number of use cases that would build a big business in, in during that time. And, you know, I think that... When you sort of, when you don't, you know, grow up thinking like a VC, you think that the world is the way that it is and it will change slowly, but it's not going to evolve to such a large extent. I think we see that in today's election to a little bit where a lot of the population in America sort of sees the world where it is today and not where it's going to be in the future. And so it's difficult to think like that. And I think it takes time and, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, you'll be wrong way more often than you'll be right. But, you know, with that company in particular, you know, in my head, I'm trying to model out, you know, how big this business can be, where are the use cases? And you could think of some, but, you know, not nearly the number that there are today or even the number of customers today because those opportunities over time have emerged to such an extent. And, and I think that's something that, you know, I, I try and be aware of in every meeting now. You know, I recently um, started keeping a decision journal. And so when we pass on deal, I try and just make a note as to why. And if that company goes on to do really well, try and look back at that and see, you know, w- w- what did I miss here, right? How do I sort of take that information to update my thinking moving forward? Because, you know, startups are outliers and it's really hard to identify some of those attributes early on, especially if you don't pay attention to it. From If we flip it and we say, what can a founder do to help you Sure. See how the world will be. I mean, there's obviously all sorts of materials associated with what the company does, and then there's market analysis. But is there anything particular that you've seen successful fundraising decks or founders include in the way that they talk about how things will be yeah. that has been a huge enabler for whenever you present a case to the rest of your partnership that really gets people thinking, hey, this is how things will be? I would say just to start that those are the best pitches, right? Where, you know, the founder comes in and you had never thought about this thing or you didn't, you know, think that it could develop in this way, but then they make you believe and um, they make you suspend disbelief for that hour. And, and I think that it, it, it takes a special type of person. A couple things that the founder can do that I think helps us. Chris Dixon has written a couple posts on this idea maze and he created one for AI and sort of understanding, you know, where the pitfalls are, you know, how they can redirect if certain things develop in certain ways. And I think many of the most impressive founders have thought through those things because um, those are the types of questions they get from VCs. I mean, they have answers, right, for, for each one. And there's not, you know, the, the, the sort of, I don't know, or I'd never thought about this before. I mean, I think I don't know is okay, as long as you have a belief of how you think will turn out and your own sort of hypothesis. And, and I think for us, we look at sort of, you know, what the risks and assumptions that the founder is making are and how do we, you know, take that baseline probability of call it, you know, 5% that they're right and improve that in our, in our eyes. And sometimes it's, you know, vetting the deal with people in our network, these companies we talked about earlier, people in other fields. Sometimes it's the founder's background themselves. Were they sort of uniquely positioned to see this opportunity when others weren't and then build that business? Sometimes it's our, it's our own research. I think that's helpful too. The human brain is, is much better at comparing things rather than seeing things in a vacuum. And so by taking, you know, the idea of how they think the future will progress and then comparing that to something else, maybe another industry, another product, another time and saying, look how this progressed based on, you know, a market that was pretty similar. I think that's always really compelling and helpful um, to help a VC through that process when they may not uh, know very much or had thought about it before and be closed off to it. Mm. You look at how founders in Europe are actively trying to enter the U.S. market. And in some cases, part of that narrative about how the future will be will, will be an expansion into the U.S., but through maybe an unorthodox uh, 
team composition, maybe the development team is in one country, the sales office is in another. What is the, the, from your experience here, but also from talking to your colleagues in the industry here in New York, the general consensus around a, a foreign or a European founder coming and trying to expand in the US and what are the, the, the hurdles that they have to overcome and what are the things that generally um, are required for them to be able to like receive funding from from investors here in the US? Yeah, I think, I think the big hurdle is making sure that they know the US market to the extent that whatever they're doing that's working um, in another geography will also work here. And so when they come here, sort of understanding, you know, is there competition here that is better funded um, or has these better relationships or better product? Is there sort of unique characteristics in the European market that's different here that they need to sort of change their product for? I know that there's a famous Waze story um, where they tried to bring their product the way it was in Tel Aviv and Israel to the US and didn't work. And so they had to kind of figure out the US user and then tailor the product to it. And that's when, you know, growth really took off and it became incredibly popular and, and in terms of like the pitfalls I think that you know if you have offices in very different geographies and time zones and whatnot making sure that sort of the trains run out of time I know it, it sounds cliche to an extent but if you're you know one founder or a couple founders and your skill set is in sales or it's in um, technology and you know the, the ships need to run on time or the business kind of falls apart right if it works in sort of a complex manner then being able to do that and, and identifying a founder who, who has done that maybe in the past um, or understands the best way to do that so that you don't have that issue of not being in the same room, you know, tends to be the, the types of founders we want to back with. They're not all in one location. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, most VCs here tend to have a similar outlook, especially if they don't have European offices or, or you know, can reference the founder with people that have worked with them in the past and know them because they're not in their own backyard. So it sounds to me like it's a little bit about, I don't know these people, and I also don't know that even though they, their intentions are to move here, yeah. and then those intentions might be very clear, that their replicability of that business model is unclear. And so therefore, I should just wait to see when they set up here in the US before I actually make a move as an investor. Is yeah. that like a rough representation um, of... I think to some extent, I think that uh, if, if they're here a lot and they plan to move here, and you know, again, being a, if you're looking at the assumptions they're making about the US market... And based on their experience, maybe they sold to it before um, with something similar inside another company or their own background or, you know, your own network. You can see, you know, this is really going to work here. People are excited about it at, at these companies or we think that users want this product. That's another way to be able to raise that yeah. baseline probability using, you know, not necessarily hard data, but, you know, different sort of sources of data. Hmm. And for those that are less familiar with the differences and nuances between New York, Boston and the Valley in terms of everything from valuation, steel quality, evolution, and all, maybe you walk through sort of a, a map, if you will, of, of those three different geographies sure. and as how they relate to and how they've changed. Yeah. The hardest part about this question is how fast it changes. I think that, you know, New York for a long time was this place where companies that needed commercialization or, you know, if you look at like Warby Parker, e-commerce, Etsy, marketplace, things like that, you know, reach mass consumers or enterprises and companies. It was a great place to start a company for those reasons. Um, commercialization is, is the word that we use. Um, you know, Silicon Valley tended to be, you know, some mix of that, but very user-centric companies, technology-centric companies. You know, if you are selling, maybe you're selling to startups or smaller businesses. And, and Boston tended to be more hard tech, which then evolved into more life sciences as there were less opportunities to build sort of the, the pipes and the, the early sort of groundwork to build, you know, massive technology companies on top of. And I think what we're seeing shift is with, again, you know, the confluence of cloud and data storage, 
there is opportunities to apply, you know, harder technologies to industry. Um, we're seeing that here in New York. We're seeing more technical people come here or, you know, companies based here being able to hire really strong technical talent here. Some of that is the universities getting better at it as well. And then you look at Boston and, you know, now a lot of the, you know, best technologies, whether it's autonomous vehicles, robotics, it's hardware, or it's, you know, deep learning, deep reinforcement learning is coming out of those universities as well. And so that's sort of I think is going to lead to a, a renaissance there. And, and the Valley still is, you know, the place where there's the most funding and the most talent. And there's so many people and there's sort of this feeling in the air of, you know, I can change the world and people are, are way more likely to take risks and go start a company and try and build these things because of that and the collaboration and the, the pay it forward mentality. And because you have people who graduate from the best universities and then maybe they go work at Facebook or they work at Google or you know one tech company out there and they sit there for a little bit and they decide I'm going to go start this thing because of that feeling, which continues to create really special companies. And you know that's I think what's missing in New York, Boston to some extent, where that hasn't necessarily happened yet. You know, you don't graduate from college and you know you're really excited. They don't, you know, Tumblr or Yahoo rather doesn't hire all of these people as neither does Etsy, Spotify to some extent. Um, but I think that's still what's missing and has made it sort of a smaller ecosystem. And at West too, you can raise you know everything from angel round to a pre-seed round to a seed round to a series A beyond without leaving that geography. But what's the, what's the dark side to that though? I mean, presumably one, salaries are crazy from what I hear and two, valuations are probably very different than here. Maybe walk us through kind of the, the dark side of of choosing where you set up your company. Yeah, I would say that, you know, as you said, you have to compete against the big players. So that makes salaries much higher there. Cost of living is much higher, you know, because you're sort of surrounded to some extent by like-minded people with like-minded interest. There can be this group think, you know, we've seen products before without any of the companies where, you know, they take off early on, but it's really just within this kind of valley centric crowd. And sometimes they go on to become, you know, huge businesses, you know, like Uber, but sometimes they just kind of fall there because you looked at that. When I remember that the founder of Homejoy wrote a blog post about that, how you shouldn't just take the San Francisco market and sort of assume that all markets will be like that because it's so different. And I think that that's, you know, something that founders have to be acutely aware of if you're going to start a business there. And then, you know, the downsides to, to New York and Boston, New York has a very vibrant community of seed and pre-seed investors, some um, really strong Series A investors, but beyond that, it still is pretty small, small street in that sense. And because you don't have as much talent and number of people, you know, if you're going to scale to a certain size, you may need to office, open offices elsewhere because there's just not that many you know, people interested in startups. A lot of people have different interests in New York. There's a lot of different industries that are big here. And in Boston, I think funding, I don't think that there's, as there's, there's some really, really strong VCs, as we talked about earlier, but they're still, you know, smaller than, than, Mm. It, definitely the Valley, um, and I would think New York as well. Um, and also, you know, if, if people are working on these technologies within universities, sort of taking that research and then making a company out of it and finding people who can help you on that journey, probably the challenge there as well. Mm. And corp dev departments in New York, what industries do they tend to be strongest in? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, financial services, of course, e-commerce, retail, media, things of that nature. And, and you know, Google may have a corp dev person here on Facebook. I'm, I'm not sure, but I would I would think that they have you know maybe one person, and but it's still more traditional industry than it would be out west. Out west, cool. Well, we always like to wrap things up with uh, a couple of fun questions. So let's start off with the first one. What normal superpower would you wish you had? Yeah, that's an easy one for me. Speed reading. I'm like, you know I'm one of these people that my pocket is always overloaded, always adding books to a list of things that I want to read next. There's never enough hours in the day, no matter how late I go to sleep or how early I wake up to read everything I want to read. So to just be able to read faster um, and retain that information would be something that um, I would love to be able to do. Yeah, same here. 
So what's something you used to strongly believe in that you now think you were fundamentally misguided about? Yeah, you know, I think early on when you, I, I would think about sort of barriers to entry, defensibility for startups, um, there was always this, you know, there were kinds of scale, there were network effects, and then there was, in my mind, there was brand, right? Which are, to me, is like, I, you know, I'm not good enough to look at brand and say that, you know, this is going to be the brand that will win in the early days because of this person. And, and I think over time, there, that still works in certain industries, definitely. But I think that as I've seen more and more companies go through the life cycle, it seems like it's less sustainable and defensible than I had initially thought, especially in a world that is interconnected now. You know, obviously, Warren Buffett's very famous um, for his investment in Coca-Cola, where, you know, his whole thing was the brand. If you have a, a marquee brand like that over time, it's always going to be a good investment and you could, you know, raise prices and it'll still be a good investment. But I think in today's world, given how easy it is to start a company, all the infrastructure available to create a product and, you know, the ease of availability of capital and the fact that we're all interconnected, you know, you can't just be, you know, this, this niche new sneaker store in, you know, the middle of the Midwest, right? I think that sort of scale uh, wins and you need to have, you know, some foundation to be able to build a real defensible business model to um, earn profits above your spending over the long term. So to me, it's it's not this like thing that I can't really pinpoint anymore and don't know a lot about. But it's more of something that's something I'm, I'm afraid of and, and not as or I'm, I'm not as afraid of missing because I'm just not seeing it as it was in the past. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Josh. Thanks so much for having me. And until next time, guys. Bye.